Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to this edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. As we record this episode, I'm in splendid isolation in my home studio, having succumbed to COVID at the weekend, as so many thousands of others have over recent days and weeks, and the case rate is dramatically on the rise. This seems a fitting background to our topic today for the last podcast of 2021, a year that's been marked by lockdowns, freak weather events, political shocks and uncertainty across the globe, and countless causes for anxiety, COVID or climate related. Our theme today is climate and mental well-being, the causes, the impacts, the political and policy implications of climate anxiety, and hopefully some of the steps we can take to offset it. To help me, I'm delighted to welcome my guests into the studio. Dr. Emma Lawrence is the Mental Health Innovations Fellow at the Institute of Global Health Innovation at Imperial College, where she's the Institute's Programme Director, Climate Cares. And she works with researchers, designers and policy experts to better understand and respond to the interconnections between climate change and mental health. Emma, hello and welcome. Hello, Amanda. Um, Thanks so much. It's really wonderful to be here. And thanks, Emma, for making it back. I I know you had a pretty difficult time getting back from, from Italy. So thank you. Thank you for being with us. My second guest, Dr. Patrick Kennedy-Williams, is the co-director of Climate Psychologists, an independent organisation providing individual therapeutic support and wider consultation regarding the mental health implications of climate change. And he's also the author of a forthcoming book, Turn the Tide on Climate Anxiety. Patrick, hello and welcome. Hello, Amanda. Thank you so much for the introduction. It's wonderful to be here. Great to have you. And we'll talk about your book, I hope, a little later. And my third guest, Rowena Davis, is the director of Global Future, a think tank dedicated to using psychological insight to pursue progressive politics. And she's also described herself as a Labour politics nerd. (laughs) So, Rowena, thank you so much for coming. And it's great to have you on board. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. And I know podcasts are generally friendly towards all nerds. So brilliant. (laughs) Absolutely. It is the home of the nerd, the podcast, isn't it, really? Are we talking to a vacuum? I hope not. Um, I wonder, before we get going on this subject, because it is a pretty massive subject for us to be covering in just 35, 40 minutes. Patrick, could we kind of wind back maybe a step and talk about what we mean by eco-anxiety and and how that relates to other forms of anxiety and perhaps mental well-being or distress? It's a really good question. Uh, And I suppose the short answer is we're still figuring all of that out. It's obviously been a relatively recent phenomenon, or at least, or at least the public awareness and understanding of eco-anxiety has been a, a relatively recent phenomenon. And I mean, the first thing to say is that, you know, I probably speak for everybody on the on the panel today when we say this is not something that we're going to pathologize as a kind of a mental health condition. And the vast, vast majority, if not everybody I've spoken with or who've worked with who has experienced eco-anxiety will say, actually, this feels like a uh, a normal response to an existential crisis um, and as I'm, hopefully we'll come on and talk about as we as we progress through the show actually you know there's a, there's a huge motivational element to eco-anxiety as well you know that this is this is in many ways quite an adaptive response in the sense that it can be it can be hugely motivating it can, be, it can bring people together and it can drive people towards action it's also not just anxiety. You know, I think although it's been coined eco-anxiety, actually, we need to broaden our understanding to think of this as essentially the ways in which uh, we respond psychologically to the climate crisis. And that might include absolutely anxiety in the classic sense, but also might include other emotions like anger and 
climate depression, climate guilt. You know, a lot of people are, are experiencing kind of are experiencing guilt responses as well. So, in a sense, it's not just anxiety. It's as I said, it's not something we're going to be pathologizing in any way, shape, or form. But also, it, we have to understand it as being distinct and different from other anxiety problems that people might certainly present to uh, mental health services with. You know, in the sense that, you know, if, if somebody was presenting with, say, health anxiety or social anxiety, you know, what we can do is help people to kind of understand that, that they might have a, a disproportionate sense of threat in relation to those things. Whereas we can't say that with climate anxiety or eco-anxiety because we know the threat is real. So, so there, is, there is something distinct about our emotional response to climate change. There is something distinct about eco-anxiety. We know it can be uh, a positive motivator for climate action. And we know it can bring people together. But at the same time, we also know that it can have really detrimental effects on people. As if to say, too much eco-anxiety we know can lead to problems with panic. We know it can lead to, to insomnia. Um, and that's a range of secondary problems in terms of mental health. So it's absolutely something that we need to be taking seriously. Because I think that, that sometimes there's a tendency, isn't there, to, to to label these things. And it's certainly a label that I think young people get given a lot. Um, you know, it's eco-anxiety. It goes along with those kind of slightly derogatory remarks about, you know, young people having no resilience or being snowflakes. And, and so there is a danger that we might, um, I think, like almost trivialise the fact that this is a, a, a response to, 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 to intense climate change. And actually, you know, I'm reassured by what you're saying, because that is absolutely clearly not the case, is it? And it's certainly not the findings of, of the work that you've been doing, Emma, either, is it? No, absolutely not. I completely second everything that Patrick just said. So uh, at Imperial College with our Climate Cares Programme, we've been working with young people um, and working with them to design studies to better understand the experiences to understand how it relates to mental health and these other experiences of distress and overwhelm and sleep problems, et cetera, but also how it relates to action and, and how we can help. And, you know, I think the term eco-anxiety, as Patrick said, is one that some people do find helpful because it encapsulates, uh, it gives a, a language, it gives a voice to the experiences that maybe they've been struggling with on their own before for a long time, before this sort of vernacular started to um, come about in the, in the media and in people's conversations. Uh, but also it can be, it can be limiting sometimes if we don't see that it encompasses this, this range of thoughts and feelings and that can obviously change in for different people or in the same person from day to day. And it does include things like anger, betrayal at government inaction, it includes, yeah, it includes feelings of, of guilt, feelings of shame, feelings of overwhelm. Um, and there's other terms like uh, climate grief or solastalgia, this feeling of being homesick, uh, even when you're at home because the landscape around you is changing. And all of these terms um, have some use, but they also, yeah, we have to make sure they're not um, a limiting uh, label or a pathologizing label for people and that they're really used to open up this discussion to what are our experiences and how do we share those with others and, and use those to drive action um, in our communities but also uh, in our politics. Yeah and, and Rowena you found the work that you do at Global Future and the surveys that you've been doing and the report that you've just published really echoes a lot of that but also I think shows how widespread this sense of, of climate anxiety is 
across the UK and across all all groups and all social classes, doesn't it? Absolutely. So I'm going to leave it to the psychologically qualified here to define the exact term of eco-anxiety. But what we did at Global Future was we asked people how they felt about the climate. So it's more of a self-reporting approach. And we found a couple of things. First of all, it was so widespread. So the majority of people across the whole of Britain believe that climate change will have a bigger impact on humanity than coronavirus did. Okay, that's a really huge number. Yeah, 56% believe that it will change humanity more than COVID. And I think this gets to your point, Amanda, that there's this real perception that people who really worry about the planet, people who are incredibly anxious, are a small group of young, probably Southern, probably white, probably middle-class people. Whereas what we found through our study is that the fear amongst climate change was incredibly high across classes and across regions. So just to give you a statistic on that, um, 42% of middle and upper class people report high levels of concern about the climate compared to 39% against working class groups. Um, And although people in the South were slightly, like a couple of percent more likely to worry about climate change, 38% of people in those so-called red wall areas, you know, the North and the Midlands, report really high levels of eco-anxiety. So I think that there is a kind of a a stereotypical prejudicial perception that this is just something that's not mainstream, that's quite small and that can be ignored. Um, But actually, um, it's deeply felt and widespread across all groups. And did you do, I'm interested as, as to when your survey took place, because my sense is that, you know, having having had a full immersive experience of two weeks in Glasgow for, for COP26, I think it pushed every, that onto lots of people's agenda that might not have been on people's agenda. And the climate became a subject that, that, that people were talking about, you know, it more openly and in more places than one would expect. Did you do your survey pre-COP or post-COP? Really interesting. So we did it um, to launch with maximum press impact for COP. So we did it the month before. So that was October. And it was in the field. And I think that's exactly right. What we found was that climate change wasn't an issue that was niche. It was much more politically an issue like crime or health, which is now completely mainstream. And the point that we were trying to push uh, towards Boris Johnson was that like, even if you don't care about the collective interest of the planet and the future and survival of the species, um, then you should really care about this for your own self-interest because climate change is an issue you have to act on if you want to win the next election. Emma. Yeah, thanks. Um, I just wanted to, to add to that with some research that we did in 2020, which was obviously, you know, in the midst of the pandemic and looking at UK young people in our survey we found that even in the midst of the pandemic in 2020, there was significantly higher distress reported around climate change than around COVID. So we were quite surprised by that. Um, And in particular, this was driven by people who weren't otherwise um, anxious in general. So people who are more generally anxious, we did see anxiety around both climate and COVID, but even people who generally don't tend to get anxious, we're still becoming really distressed um, around climate significantly more so than COVID, even as a UK young person in 2020. Um, And so I think that just speaks to, again, that point that it's not just uh, a certain type of person who's, um, you know, prone to worry, who's worrying about this. 
I think we can we can we can we can kind of expand it even further as well outside of the UK and look at and look at you know some recent data from this year around kind of what the global picture looks like with 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 climate anxiety particularly with young people and I think to further dispel this idea that it's uh, it's a young person's problem it's a female problem it's it's a typically white global north problem like a problem of the privileged and I think it was, it was it's a really important question to, to, to ascertain but actually you know when you look at you know this is a survey done of 10,000 people across across the global north and the global south what you what we saw were the highest levels of concern around climate change the highest levels of climate anxiety in you will if you were amongst young people were in prone uh environments this was in the, the so in the philippines in the global south and then and then in the north this was uh the highest rates were in portugal and they, again they sort of the explanation for that was that actually Portugal has seen since 2017, I think, you know, real increase in wildfires and, and extreme weather events. So actually, what we're what we're seeing is this is this is a, a really a global issue, and and in exactly the same way as we said, people are disproportionately affected in certain regions of the world when it comes to climate change. So too, it seems are they disproportionately affected when it comes to climate anxiety and and, and the mental health implications of it all as well. Yeah, and that was a really, really good point, um, Patrick. And that survey also found that those rates of climate anxiety and distress weren't only higher um, where there had been more direct effects, but also less government action, which sort of speaks to Rowena's point, uh, again, about the importance of, of government action in this space, not only for you know saving the planet in the longer term, but also for the mental health and well-being and, and distress of the electorate right now. And when we work with these uh, young climate activists around the world, they're reporting that, you know, it, when you witness this, when you see your own future threatened, but your current way of life threatened, when you're witnessing these changes happening in your society, of course, this has a big effect. So this is not just, you know, the white global north. This is happening already now. and you know, this is having a huge effect on on these people. Of course, of course, it does when you when you see that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting you say that, Emma, because I was really one of the things that really struck me during COP. Actually, both both in you know in the the discussions themselves, and you know, I was lucky enough to get into the blue zone for a bit, but also in the fringes and outside, and in some of the other conversations that were happening around the city, is is this sense of real deep seated. I don't know, hurt and pain, actually, you know, and a number of people who were close to tears a lot of the time. We were, you know, we I'm sure we all saw those pictures that were broadcast on the news of, you know, various people from small island states holding up pictures of their grandchildren on their phone or of crying while they were making their speeches. And, you know, there was this real sense that this was actually something quite deep seated in people, but had come to the fore in a way that I hadn't seen in climate conversations in that public arena before and certainly the young people I spoke to really felt this acutely and were saying that you know being an activist actually takes a huge toll on their mental health as well it isn't just this suffering from climate anxiety is a passive thing having it done to you it's taking action and in turn then creates quite a toll on mental well-being because you know the pace of continually having to worry about these things protest about these things feel that you might be making your voice heard well, trying to make your voice heard, but actually feel you might be shouting into a vacuum, is quite detrimental to people's well-being. And 
and and has just a you know a very significant impact on them. I think. I think I think it's a really it's a really important point, Amanda. And I, I, when we sort of first started, sort of putting together some ideas about actually how to support people with this, yeah, absolutely, it was kind of you know kind of youth climate activists, climate researchers, people deeply involved in sustainability. These were oftentimes the people who were, who were approaching us, you know, needing a bit more a bit more support. And we sort of you know said you know in, in the early days we say you know climate anxiety can be overcome with climate action. And I think that that is still a, that, that message holds true very much. So there is something inherently um, beneficial about feeling like you're, you're you're meaningfully impacting on things and taking action. But at the same time, that action has to be sustainable and actually, you know, sustainable for the planet, but actually sustainable for yourself as well. And so, you know, what we found is that a, a lot of the work that we've been doing with it, with individuals or groups of climate activists or, or groups of climate researchers or whatever is actually about saying, you know, it's about self-care, you know, and it's it's about being able to uh, sustain yourself while you're doing this work. It's absolutely draining, you know, especially if you're, you know, if you're if you're doing if you're deeply involved in in climate action, deeply involved in sustainability, over and above your day job, or even or even more if you, if it's part of your day job. Actually, it's really important to be able to take those breaks in the evening, in the weekend, and be able to take a step back from it because um, it absolutely takes an emotional toll yeah yeah I I absolutely agree Patrick I think that there's again this range of experiences and people you know are going to fluctuate up and down from feeling you know overwhelmed at one moment and maybe not knowing how to act to feeling you know you might go to the point of almost uh, acting so constantly that you can burn out so there there is a process to help people find uh, that way that um, is sustainable, as you say, for themselves in taking action um, in their lives or with communities. And I've heard it uh, spoken about as both sort of innovism and activism. So how you're doing this processing and taking care of yourself, as well as that work that you do in your community and in society. So uh, an example we're doing at Climate Cares is we've co-designed with 10 young people a self-guided journal that we're um, now piloting and, and working with people to work through the thoughts and feelings they have in response to climate change, um, how that uh, relates to the way that they take care of themselves through that process and what information and narratives they're getting from society about that, but then also how that can guide into action, but in ways that are sustainable for them. But in general, I think this, this point of there being multiple perspectives holds also with how we think about our personal uh, responses to the climate crisis because we see people sometimes hold this view that you know this fatalistic view or this um, very despairing view this view of feeling helpless and hopeless and in despair and overwhelm that comes from holding that climate change is happening it's real um, it's really bad right now and into the future and that also understandably comes with a lot of um, grief a lot of anger a lot of um, loss and sadness and what we find helpful is um, validating that it's true that this is happening. It's understandable to feel these things. But at the same time, we don't want people to feel uh, stuck in that and to be able to sort of process that and hold that. And what um, we hear is also helpful is to hold that at the same time as being able to hold that there is uh, a way that we can, as individuals, work towards 
a more positive vision of the future and as communities to work towards that more positive vision of the future and that that creation of hope can be an active process. So there is a way to take action um, and create that positive future, future yourself and not see hope as a passive thing that you have to wait for, but hope as an active process. And it's in holding the tension between that, but the, you can hold this anger and sadness at, at wider inaction, um, at the losses that we are and, and do face, and at the same time hold that we can still make a difference as individuals and as a communities. We can still push um, and have our voices heard for that, that bigger action and, and be part of creating that hopeful future and, um, you know, taking care of ourselves in that process and allowing those things to kind of exist and allowing times when we need to rest and allowing times uh, when we act. Rowena, this is very much the territory that you're working on in your day job, isn't it, at Global Futures, about the idea of channeling some of this into what you call progressive politics, but hopefully also solution-based politics, I should imagine. Yes, absolutely. So I was struck in the findings of the report. Um, Patrick talked at the beginning of this conversation about different eco-emotions, so eco-anger and eco-fear. And we found that although eco-anxiety was quite kind of widespread across all groups, eco-anger was significantly more likely to be felt by younger people Um, And I think that's obviously rational because they have done the least to contribute to the problem and going to suffer the worst consequences. Um, So that makes sense. And what what we're quite interested in is what are the behavioral consequences of those emotional reactions? Um, And at York University, Pavlos Vasopoulos, who worked with us on the report, talks about how fear often can make you risk averse and sometimes go inwards um, you know, like, you know, you see a scary advert on the back of a cigarette packet and you're less likely to smoke the cigarette, right? You know, you kind of, you withdraw. Whereas anger is actually much more similar to hope in that it's a kind of a, an, a more motivating force. It forces you to confront. And also interestingly, anger forces you like hope to kind of shut out other perspectives. Like I'm just not going to listen to your negativity or I'm just not going to listen to your point of view. It's actually much more kind of forward thinking um, and more confrontational and more active. Um, So, you know, I'd be interested in what the others think about that. Like, you know, is anger a slightly healthier reaction? Um, Can it be more positive sometimes or can it be just as destructive? I don't know. But this is this is the kind of what we were starting to get from our research and the feedback we were getting from our survey. Yeah, that has been echoed in in wider research, actually. There has been other research that uh, looked at eco-anger, eco-fear, these, these different emotions. And um, similar to what you're saying, found that eco-anger was the one most associated with people taking action. So that was has been mirrored in, in other research. But yeah. I would have thought psychologically, I mean, certainly those the, all those emotions are quite, I don't want to say extreme, but they're quite powerful, aren't they? And, and you know, so, so the danger of having a lot of eco-anger, just as having a lot of eco-anxiety, presumably is is less good for your overall general balanced state of well-being and and I guess would have you know greater longer term impacts perhaps could that be right Patrick I mean is that you know my simplifying that too much oh I think that's I think that's absolutely right I mean as with as with any of these um the emotional responses we can have to the climate crisis you know we know that some of them, even even guilt, can be motivating. You know, I mean, so what is guilt? It's it's essentially shining a light on your values, isn't it? You know, it's something that you yeah. can kind of 
you know, it's it, it's it's there to tell you if you feel like you've done something wrong. Now, of course, the, the problem with climate guilt is that oftentimes we f- we feel it despite, you know, and we might hold too much personal responsibility or personal accountability, you know, so that that guilt, of course, can be a can be a problem as well. Um, I mean, absolutely. Any of the any of the emotional responses that we feel individually, collectively in response to the climate crisis have the potential to be motivating, have the potential to be useful. All emotions have the potential to be useful. Um, they also have the potential to be detrimental as well. And actually, we haven't we, we've done a lot of talking about about the strong negative emotions we can experience in, to, in in relation to the climate crisis. Actually, you know, there's a whole set of of, of of positive emotional responses we can have as well. We can feel. We talked about hope a little bit already today we can feel a sense of connection. And actually that's one of the, um, I I think one of the the most powerful responses we've had from, from youth climate activists, you know, who said, you know, they, they'll be, they're they're forming connections in ways that are, are is incredible really, you know, in a, in a global sense, at a global level. Um, Actually that's really protective. So there are, there are a huge kind of, there's a, there's a whole, spectrum if you like of emotional responses we can have to the climate crisis and i think anxiety gets a lot of airplay and rightly so because it's it's so widespread but actually there are a lot of positive emotions that can kick into play as well and i think as psychologists our you know our job is about how really how to help people to navigate these things how to engender some of those positive emotional responses uh, and how to um just as emma said how to allow people to experience and to feel and to validate some of the negative emotional responses they have but also to be able to stay adaptive and stay resilient and for them to not become overpowering or overwhelming yeah and, and i was absolutely and i was very struck at, at the amount of care when i talked to climate young, young climate activists the amount of care they have for one another um and actually i think generally the amount of care young people have for one another now i just think it's a it, it feels to me like a, a real generational shift um you know I, I know growing up you know we looked after out for our mates but i certainly think women of my generation were less supportive and caring of their immediate young peers as I see my daughters and their friends behaving and their the young people in their cohorts. So I think it's actually that sense that they're looking after each other as they look after the planet. Rina, I wanted to ask you though, just if we could just shift tack ever so slightly, how seriously do you feel that our politicians of all colours and all perspectives, um, you know, regardless of, of what party they represent, are taking climate issues? Because it doesn't feel as if it's quite far enough up anyone's agenda at the moment brilliant question I mean what I think our research revealed and actually it taught me this as well because I realized I was coming with my own prejudices and biases towards the subject is that certainly the British people who we surveyed are very united in their belief that climate change exists it's threatening it's dangerous and it needs to be taken as seriously if not more seriously than COVID it is the politicians who are yet to catch up. And I think that's politicians of all parties. Um, you know, and I say that as a, you know, paid Labour, right, paid up Labour member who, you know, really believes in the party. But I think we also have some work to do to, to shift that. And what we took from the report was that politicians often make decisions with a particular view in mind of what they think the electorate is. They assume the electorate doesn't really care about the climate. They assume that they care more about whatever it might be, their, their bills or immigration, whatever it might be. They ha- they come to decision-making with a preconceived view of the electorate. And that electorate view, that perception has become outdated at best or at worst, it just never even existed. <laughs> you know, and, and they really need to um, bridge that gap 
um, between themselves and the public. And if they don't, you're going to see increased disenchantment and ultimately you're going to have accountability and some party is going to come in and claim this space and offer hope and offer practical action. And the party that does that first credibly and in a unifying way is the party that's going to win elections, not just in the next round, but in the you know years to come. Yeah, we see that vacuum a little bit, don't we, being filled by the Greens in some political arenas, but but less so here in the UK because of the way that our system tends to work in terms of proportional representation. But I certainly think that's really interesting. And I think that 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 where you see politicians taking notice, they certainly have have greater credibility. And Emma, you've been calling for that kind of policy political action in, in some of the recommendations of the, 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 the papers that have come out of the Grantham Institute as well, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and be- just before I answer that, just just to say that the flaw that uh, you pointed rightly pointed out that governments may hold around how the electorate feels, studies show that that's also what we hold for each other. So people think that other people care less about the climate crisis than they personally do. And this can be quite um, immobilising because people think, well, why should I act? Because other people don't care. No one else cares. And, and that feels very overwhelming to be the only one that cares. But actually people, as, as you've shown, uh, powerfully do care. And so I think that is, is really important and powerful for people to know. You know, we, there are a bunch of people out there. We all care. And we need to ensure that that action happens from our leaders. So, yeah, one of the things we'd like to see is uh, the the briefing paper that was written by the Institute of Global Health Innovation and the Grantham Institute is to ensure that the costs of climate change on mental health that are currently really significant, um, but currently hidden, both the kind of costs that we're talking about today on the mental health and well-being of people who haven't yet directly experienced climate change, but also the massive costs of, of temperature, of floods in the UK, um, of the, the wildfires and extreme weather events we're seeing more globally. Those have huge mental health costs as well that are not being accounted for. So this needs to be taken taken into account in in policy and planning. But also the reverse is true, whereby some of the inequalities that we see um, in society in lack of access to green space, in in, um, air pollution, all of these things that impact mental health with climate action we can not only improve uh, the world for a safer climate future, but we can also start to dr- address some of the other inequalities in our society, which themselves cause um, mental health burden. We can also uh, take these actions that um, not only uh, reduce the likelihood that climate um, change will impact mental health, but actually uh, take actions that improve mental health through the actions themselves. So something like making it uh, easier for people to walk and cycle around, having more access to tree cover and green space, having less air pollution, having more connected communities, as Patrick said before. All of these things are part of what's needed to shift to a safer climate future, but they also themselves have big mental health benefits. And I think that hasn't really been taken into account, that message um, to to, to the public, but also in how politicians are making decisions around climate policies. And that's a really good action agenda. And I was, uh, sadly, we really need to draw it to close. And I was going to ask you if you could make some recommendations about what people can do. And, and <laughs> I think, Emma, you've just scraped out a whole programme of work there. Um, uh, uh, thank you for that. Rowena, what would you recommend that people do, either those who have, have control and power, like perhaps our politicians, or those of us who are just 
suffering from anxiety or, or, or want to have turn our channel our anxiety into energy and action what would be your recommendations for people I guess I have two the first one is very similar to Emma's which I thought was spot on which is remember you are not alone it was quite interesting in our report that despite so many people having climate anxiety and really really caring about the planet very, very few people supported direct action because it was the time of the blocking of the M25 by Insulate Britain. And so there was actually the vast majority of people really don't support direct action. And it's easy to think or label the people who don't support direct action as somehow climate change deniers or, you know, like backwards people or ignorant people, but they're not. They just don't like direct action, but they really want to see action on the climate, right? So don't think that just because they don't back you in that one protest that they don't really care about their recycling and their air quality and all these other things like they, there's a lot of common ground we can build from um and similarly people you know who might write off like those swampy activists blocking the m25 like you actually might find you have quite a lot in common with them than you think and there's there's a hope in that and there's there's space to build practical action there and then the second thing very briefly is um i like what i find personally just absolutely important is to spend time and then give yourself time to spend time in nature because this is the thing that you're trying to protect and this is the thing that can nourish you and um, can replenish you and give you inspiration um, and make you work from the positive as well and you know it's 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 wonderful to be able to to work with that energy that the universe has gifted us so I think you know at the moment for me it's the fact that my my cherry trees outside at the moment, like they're still all springy because they've still got life in them at the moment. They've still got these tiny buds waiting for spring. And I noticed them this morning with my daughter and I thought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, so find some time to draw on that. And we, we, yeah. it's a wonderful thing. We have this great work to do to change our planet and make it sustainable. And, and we should feel energized in that and give our space, self space to feel energized and motivated by that in nature. Mm, that's a wonderful thing to think about, even even when it's a, a little bit damp outside, which it is today and will be for the next few weeks, I suspect. Patrick, what, what do you, I mean, you've written a whole book about this, Turning the Tide on Climate Anxiety. I'm assuming I've sadly not seen it yet. And, and when it's fully out, you must come back and tell us more. But I'm assuming in there we've got some hints and tips about what we can do as citizens to tackle anxiety. Absolutely. And um, it was absolutely wonderful to listen to uh, Emma and, and Rowena describe actually very good evidence based ideas, I have to say, about what we about what we can do uh, individually to help sort of manage uh, manage eco anxiety. What's, what's been interesting, actually, is turn the tide of being, you know, being being one example. But actually, there's there's been a real sort of ground up process, I suppose, around the world where whereby psychologists have been trying to work out, OK, actually, what's how, how can we how can we best support people here? And actually, I think we've all been really listening to what people have been saying has been helpful. And there's a really nice review study from Webster University that came out earlier this year, looking at all the, you know, bringing as many disparate um, examples of, of kind of people, you know, programs around the world saying, how are we supporting people here? What, what are people finding useful? Um, what kind of psychological approaches are working? And absolutely, the ones that came up time and time again, forming connections with people you know, find your tribes, talk about, not just talking about climate change, talk about the emotional impact of climate change as well. And there are more and more resources popping up and climate cafes, all these kinds of things all around the world that are enabling people to do that. Absolutely spending time in nature as well. You know, the, these are the, the kind of, the kinds of things that, you know, really, really do make a difference. And, um, and certainly we're making recommendations along those lines 
in the book. I think also just remembering that actually we have a lot to thank our emotions for <laughs> and remembering to just to validate our own, our own kind of emotional experiences this is an emotional topic, you know, and it's important that we feel something about it. And also just re- remember not to hold oneself overly accountable for all of this as well. You know, I, I, one of the things I've been delighted about today is hearing, is hearing so much around systems change and political change, actually, you know, we talk about the myth of individual accountability. Actually, no one person should feel like they have to carry this this problem on their own shoulders. Um, and you know, any any ways that people can be connecting with sort of system, systems and systemic change, uh, you know, that that's that's where the real difference is 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 going to be is going to be made. And also, you know, the, the climate crisis is so big, and you know, it's it's really important that we you know that everyone any any little actions they're taking in their day, in their daily lives make sure that you're, you're recognizing them noticing them and celebrating them you know it might it might it might sound simple but actually you know so much good work gets unrecognized and actually you know yes yes we might you know the climate crisis might still be there when we go to bed but actually celebrate the work that you've done and give yourself a break as well <laughs> absolutely absolutely and i would add probably now as it's Christmas and I know a lot of people will be you know like like Patrick and me they'll be they'll be suffering from COVID they may well be isolating we need to make sure we reach out to those who are not able to connect in as well um and you know so so have a care for your neighbor and that person down the road that you may not have spoken to as much as you perhaps should do because we need to care for each other as well as caring for the planet don't we Um, because we are all in this together. Thank you so much. Um, A huge thank you to my guests, to Rowena and Laura, uh, to Emma and to Patrick. Thank you for giving up the time and for sharing your insights and your wisdom. And it's been just delightful to meet you all. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And a huge thank you to uh, my producer, Jim, and to our researcher and programmer, Beth. Um, It's been an extraordinary year for the climate and for Planet Pod. And as always, we've been immensely privileged to talk to Sue, so many interesting, insightful and inspiring guests. We hope you'll keep listening. Uh, Do subscribe as that way a new episode just drops effortlessly into your inbox and do follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We'll be back in January with a brand new episode all about climate activism, picking up on some of the things we've been talking about today. So until then, thanks for listening. Goodbye and have a healthy, happy, safe and sustainable Christmas. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.